Shalom, shalom, welcome world changers. You guys are world changers. You guys can make a difference. Tonight, we're going to be reading from the book of Numbers, and um, we're going to get into some of the uh, very interesting stories about from the book of Numbers. We're going to start out reading uh, from chapters 1 through 4, which is basically just setting up uh, the children of Israel for traveling in the wilderness and and that kind of thing, getting everybody in order. There's a lot of awesome, awesome stories in the book of Numbers. So it's just going to be a very awesome uh, journey with you guys, reading the book of Numbers, discussing the book of Numbers. So that's what we're doing. So welcome to those of you who are on TikTok and welcome to those of you who are on YouTube. Uh, speaking of it, um, on YouTube, we have Calamento says Shalom all, Shalom. We have 1 John 2.26 over there on YouTube says Shalom, good evening. Jordan says Shalom all, Shalom Jordan. Mark says Shalom. Cat Cool says Shalom. And Jordan says had a blessed scripture study earlier with a fellow Sabbath-keeping believer and co-worker on Leviticus, Jeremiah, and Revelation. Very interesting. Awesome. By the way, Jordan, how's your new song coming? Let me know how your new song is uh, is coming. Vinny says, Shalom, everyone. So welcome, everyone over there on YouTube. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Blessings multiplied to you guys. Great to see you guys. We have a question here. R. Cater GT says a question pertaining to Lot. He is considered righteous despite despite giving his daughters to be king. Well, I, I it really wasn't that wasn't really his intent. That's what they did. That's what these people do. Okay, they're very violent people. Even to this very day, these people are very very violent. Uh, I asked so. I asked so can get rebuttal naysayers. When they bring that up. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's, first of all, I mean, the reason why Lot offered his daughters is because he's like, listen, um, if you guys are so desperate, here, take my daughters. The, of course, the idea was not for, that, for, for it to happen the way it happened. But again, these people are very, very violent. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's what I would say for sure. It doesn't say that Lot said, here, take them and do whatever, uh, you know, do Lot did not command those wicked men to do what they did to them, okay? He basically, out of desperation, said, listen, guys, you guys are so desperately wicked. Here, and my daughters. By the way, these people, uh, these people are very, very... I just got booted off of TikTok. Uh, let me see if I can start it again. These people are very, very wicked. Very, very wicked. So, yeah. Even to this day, they're very violent people. They are. They are. Uh, I know. Of, <laughs> I can tell you some stories. I, let me just say that. Um, Jordan, speaking speaking of the song, it's going pretty good. Not sure if I'll actually record it, but we'll share on YouTube. Awesome. Awesome. 
one of these days, Jordan, if you, I mean, if you're interested, uh, sometime coming on here and sharing it, singing or, or whatever, uh, uh, you're welcome to do that at any time, Jordan, you're welcome to jump on here at any time to share that song if you want. Okay. Yeah. So, um, thank you for your question there. RK, Arcader JT and, and, and all your comments. Let's get into Numbers chapter 1. Let's get into Numbers chapter 1. It, starting with verse 1, the people of Israel are counted. And this is interesting because like, it's interesting to know uh, how many people actually came out of Egypt with Moses and how many people from, from each tribe. It's very interesting. I see there on YouTube, we have Trish that says, Shalom, Shalom, Trish. Welcome. Good to see you as well. And Byron as well. Shalom. Good to see you, Byron. Okay. So Numbers chapter one, verse one, the people of Israel had left Egypt and were living in the Sinai desert. Then on the first day of the second month of the second year, when Moses was in the sacred tent to the Lord, or it was in the sacred tent, the Lord said, um, let me just take uh, this footnote here first on uh, the footnote on the second month, the second month Zeev, which uh, the second month of the Hebrew calendar, which is about mid-April to mid-May, that would be on the Gregorian calendar. So the Lord said, I want you and Aaron to find out how many people are in each of Israel's clans and families. And make a list of all the men 20 years and older who are able to fight in battle. The following 12 family leaders, one from each tribe, will help you. Elizur, son of Shadur, from Reuben. Shalemiel, son of Zurashaddai, from Simeon. Nashon, son of Aminadab, from Judah or Yehuda. Nathanel, son of Zuar from Issachar, Eliab, son of Helon from Zebulun, Elishama, son of Amihud from Ephraim, Gamaliel, son of Hadazur from Manasseh or Manasseh, Abidan, son of, son of Gideoni from Benjamin, Ahiezer, son of Amishadai from Dan, Pagiel, son of Okron from Asher, Elisaf, son of Dual from Gad, Ahira, son of Enon from Naphtali. Aaron, or excuse me, Moses and Aaron, together with these 12 tribal leaders, called together the people that same day. They were counted according to their clans and families. Then Moses and the others listed the names of the men 20 years and older, just as the Lord had, co had commanded. Number of men from each tribe who were at least 20 years old and strong enough to fight in Israel's army was as follows. 46,500 from Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob. In the footnotes, uh, the Hebrew text has Israel, Jacob's name, after God renamed him. Again, God renamed him because Israel, uh, Jacob was, in, a, in essence, born again. 59,300 from Simeon. 45,650 from Gad. 74,600 from Judah. 
54,400 from Issachar, 57,400 from Zebulun, 40,500 from Ephraim, 32,200 from Manasseh, 35,400 from Benjamin, 62,700 from Dan, 41,500 from Asher, and 53,400 from Naphtali. Just out of curiosity, let's see who's got the most. It looks like Judah has the most at 74,000, 74,600. Um, who has the least? That would be Manasseh, Manasseh at 32,200. 30, uh, 32, so Judah had like more than double than Manasseh had. The total number of men registered by Moses, Aaron, and the 12 leaders was 603,550. We got more detail here. Remember earlier earlier we read that uh, the number of men who came out of Egypt was 600,000. Keep in mind, this is not including the, the women or the children, the wives, uh, the maids, any, any other thing, just the men. Uh, which actually were 20, I believe it was 20 years old and, and older, 20 years and older. Uh, so all of the children and all of the women were not counted there. So there's estimates of at least 3 million, perhaps even way more than 3 million people that actually came out of Egypt. And that is only including, by the way, that's only including the children of Israel. That's not including the mixed multitude. Because remember in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, we have the mixed multitude that came up out of Israel as well. Okay? So the mixed multitude, um, it doesn't say how many of, the, uh, of them there were, right? So the mixed multitude were not the children of Israel, not the Jewish people, but rather a, a mixture of, di of different people uh, that were in Egypt at the time that decided to join Moses and the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. I tell you one thing, I'd be wanting to join them for sure. You know, I'd be, I'd be part of, uh, I'd be in there one way or another, right? If I wasn't the, of the children of Israel, I'd be in there part of the mixed multitude. And that's a good point as well to bring across that a lot of people say, well, the Torah is only for the Jews. Uh, no, excuse me. Have you read the Torah? The Torah says in many places, it's for the soldier as well, the, even the stranger, even the visitor in the land, not even, uh, this is not counting uh, the mixed multitude. Because you have the children of Israel, 603,550, as we just read. Okay, then you have the mixed multitude on top of that, which who knows how many of those there were. Uh, so they all received the Torah. And then the Torah also included the so-called, the, the quote-unquote sojourner or the stranger, the alien, the visitor, which also uh, came under the, um, the rules uh, in the instructions of the Lord as well. So don't let anybody tell you it's only for the Jews. Uh, let me see. Thomas said on YouTube, the wicked can be very depraved more than you know. I know I was one of them. I sunk into such deep depravity that those who know me now would never believe it. Thank God for his mercy. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that, Thomas. That's a little bit of a 
little bit of a testimony there. Uh, awesome. You know, and same thing, I mean, with, with myself as well, a lot of people who, um, knew me from before, it's like completely different person. I'm a completely different person. Really? I mean, truly born again, new creation in Christ. Um, I tell you one thing, and perhaps, I don't know, Thomas, if you could, if you could also say this as well, I, but I can say this. The people who personally knew me back in my old days, the darker days, right? The depraved days, you might call them. Um, the person, the people who knew me, whom I thought were probably, like, I, I thought these people are definitely atheists. They're certainly not godly. They've never, I mean, they don't seem to be believers at all. All of the people that to me were unbelievers, atheists, when I, when I, you know, uh, got saved or born again and, and, and God changed me, transformed me. Um, none of them, not one, not one of them could look me in the eyes and say, there is no God. Not one of them. In fact, many of the people who knew me back in those days, whom I thought were atheists, they actually looked me in the eyes and said, there is a God. And that kind of shocked me. It's like, Wow, coming from you? Wow. But I mean, hey, when God changes a person so thoroughly, um, so I mean, just a, just an exhaustive transformation. No, nobody can deny it. And I've said this before many times, but one of my my neighbors, um, and the, actually that neighbor, actually a couple of them. Um, living in the same house. Uh, both of them were a couple of these people that I thought definitely they're atheists, right? Um, and so they stopped me like a few weeks after I got born again. And they're like, what happened to you? What happened to you? I said, I got born again, you know? God got a hold of me. God flooded my life. He changed me. He he radically he changed my heart. He changed my he changed everything. And they were just shocked. They could not they couldn't deny it. And they were shocked. Okay, so um Numbers chapter 1 continuing verse 4 47, but those from the Levi or Levi tribe were not included because the Lord had said to Moses, when you count the Israelites, do not include those from the Levi tribe. Instead, give them the job of caring for the sacred, that'd be the tabernacle, its furnishings and the objects used for worship. They will camp around the tent and whenever you move, they will take it down carry it to the new camp, and set it up again. Anyone else who tries to go near it must be put to death. We know the story, by the way. Let me, let me just stop here for a second. We know, we know the story of Uzzah, or Uzzah, you know, in the days of David, when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was carried upon a cart, and, you know, the oxen stumbled, and, you know, apparently Uzzah thought that the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant would fall off, and he reached out to try to steady the ark and God struck him dead. Hey, I mean, God, it says right here, only the Levites are to touch those things or else it must be put to death. That's what it says, right? It's what we just read, right? What we just read here, verse 51. Anyone else who tries to go near it must be put to death. 
And that could be why that, like the reason why in Ethiopia right now, in Aksum, Ethiopia, St. Mary's of Zion Chapel, where they say the Ark of the Covenant is currently housed, um, they won't allow, you know, they won't allow, you know, the big TV networks to go in there and film or, you know, to, you know, to do that kind of thing. Cause it's like, it's a super, super, super sacred object. The most sacred object that has ever graced the face of earth. It's not anything to be put on show. Not anything to be displayed as, as a piece of merchandise. So very, very sacred, very, very holy. Verse 52, the rest of the Israelites will camp in their own groups and under their own banners. But the Levites will camp around the sacred tent to make sure that no one goes near it and makes, and makes me furious with the Israelites. The people of Israel did everything the Lord had commanded. Oh, that goes against, again, <laughs> for the umpteenth thousandth time, this goes against the modern Christian narrative that you cannot obey all. You cannot do what the Lord commands. The Lord, you know, the commandments of the Lord are just to show you that you're a sinner. It's impossible to obey the commandments of the Lord. At least everything, you can't do everything the Lord commands you. Oh, yeah? Well, it says right here, Numbers chapter 1, verse 54, the people of Israel did everything, everything the Lord had commanded. Everything. Just like how Zechariah and Elizabeth did in Luke chapter 1, verse 6. Numbers chapter 2, instructions for setting up Israel's camp. The Lord told Moses and Aaron how the Israelites should arrange their camp. Each tribe must be set, excuse me, must set up camp under its own banner and under the flags of its ancestral families. These camps will be arranged around the sacred tent, but not close to it. Judah and the tribes that march with it must be set up, excuse me, must set up camp on the east side of the sacred tent. Under the under their own banner, the forty uh, seventy four thousand six hundred troops of the tribe of Judah will be arranged by divisions and led by Nashon, son of Amminadab. On one side of Judah will be the tribe of Issachar, with uh, with Nathanael, son of Zuar, as the leader of its fifty four thousand four hundred troops. On the other side will be the tribe of Zebulun, with Eliab, son of Helon, as the leader of its 57,400 troops. These 186,400 troops will march into battle first. Reuben and the tribes that march with it must set up camp on the south side of the sacred tent under their own banner. The 46,000 uh, 46,500 troops of the tribe of Reuben will be arranged by divisions and led by Azur, son of Shadur. On, the, uh, on one side of Reuben will be the tribe of Simeon with Shalom, uh, Shalomiel, son of Zurashaddai, 
as the leader of its 59,000 troops. On the other side will be the tribe of Gad, with Eliasaph, son of Duel, as the leader of its 45,650 troops. These 151,450 troops will march into battle second. Marching behind Reuben will be the Levites, arranged in groups, just as they had they are camped. They will carry the sacred tent and their banners. Ephraim, Ephraim, and the tribes that march with it must set up camp on the west side of the sacred tent under their own banner. The 40,500 troops of the tribe of Ephraim will be arranged by divisions and led by Elishama, son of Amihud. On one side of Ephraim will be the tribe of Manasseh, with Gamaliel, son of Padazur, as the leader of its 32,200 troops. On the other side will be the tribe of Benjamin, with Abidan, son of Gideoni, as the leader of its 35,400 troops. These 108,100 108,100 troops will march into battle third. Dan and the tribes that march with it must be set up, um, must set up camp on the north side of the sacred tent under their own banner. The 62,007 troops of the tribe of Dan will be arranged by divisions and led by Ahiezer. Son of Amishadai. On one side of Dan will be the tribe of Asher with Pagiel, son of Okran, as the leader of its 41,500 troops. On the other side will be the tribe of Naphtali with Ahira, son of Enon. As the leader of its 53,400 troops, these 157,600 troops will march into battle last. So all the Israelites in the camp were counted according to their ancestral families. The troops were arranged by divisions and totaled 603,550. The only Israelites not included were the, the Levites just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Israel did everything the Lord had told Moses again. They arranged their camp according to to the clans and families with each tribe under its own banner. And that was the order by which they marched into battle. Numbers chapter 3. The sons of Aaron. When the Lord talked with Moses on Mount Sinai, Aaron's four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar, were the ones to be ordained as priests. But the Lord killed Nadab and Abihu in the Sinai desert when they used fire that was unacceptable. In the footnote, fire that was unacceptable, one possible meaning for the, the difficult Hebrew text. Now we uh, we dealt with that before in our previous live stream. Uh, so they they were dis- uh, they were killed by the Lord 
uh, in the Sinai desert when they used fire that was unacceptable in their offering to the Lord. And because Nadab and Abihu had no sons, only as Eliezer and Ithamar served as priests with their father. And the Lord said to Moses, assign the Levi tribe to Aaron the priest. They will be his assistants and will work at the sacred tent for him and for all the Israelites. The Levites will serve the community by being responsible for the furnishings of the tent. They are assigned to help Aaron and his sons, who have been appointed to be priests. Anyone else who tries to perform the duties of a priest must be put to death. Moses, I have chosen these Levites from all Israel and and will belong to me in a special way. And they will belong to me in a special way. When I killed the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, I decided that the firstborn sons in every Israelite family and the firstborn males of their flocks and herds would be mine. But now I accept these Levites in place of the firstborn sons of, of the Israelites. Verse 14. In the Sinai desert, the Lord said to Moses, Now I want you to count the men and boys in the Levi tribe by families and by clans. Include everyone at least a month old. So Moses obeyed and counted them. Levi's three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, had become the heads of their own clans. Gershon's sons were Libni and Shimai. Kohath's sons were Amram, Ethar, Hebron, and Uziel. And Merari's sons were Mahli and Mushi. These were the sons and grandsons of Levi, and, and they had become the leaders of the Levite clans. The two Gershon clans were Libnites and Shemites. And they had 7,500 men and boys at least one month old. The Gershonites, under the leadership of Eliasaph, son of Lael, were to camp on the west side of the sacred tent. Their duties at the tent included taking care of the tent itself, along with its outer covering, the curtain for the entrance, the curtains hanging inside the courtyard around the tent, as well as the curtain and robes for the entrance to the courtyard and its altar. The the Gershonites were responsible for setting these things up and taking them down. The four Kohath clans were the Amramites, Isharites, Hebronites and Uzielites, and, and they had 8,600 men and boys, at least a month old. So in the footnotes, it says some, some manuscripts of one translation uh, of one ancient translation says 8,300. 8, so instead of 8,600, um, some manuscripts would say 8,300. The Kohathites, under the leadership of Eli, Elizaphon, son of Uziel, were to camp on the south side of the sacred tent. Their duties at the tent included taking care of the sacred chest, so that's the Ark of the Covenant, the table of, uh, for the sacred bread, the lampstand, the altars, the objects used for worship, and the curtain in front of the most holy place. 
the Kohathites were responsible for setting these things up and taking them down. Eleazar, son of Aaron, was the head of the Levite leaders, and he made sure that the work at the sacred tent was done. The two Marari clans were Mahlites and Mushites, and they had 6,200 men and boys, at least one month old. The Mararites, under the leadership of Zuriel, son of Abihel, were to camp on the north side of the sacred tent. Their duties included taking care of the tent frames and the pieces that held the tent up, the bars, the posts, the stands, and its other equipment. They were also in charge of the other of the posts that supported the courtyard, as well as their stands, tent pegs, and ropes. The Mamari clans were responsible for setting these things up and taking them down. Moses, Aaron, and, and his sons were to camp in front of the sacred tent on the east side and to make sure that the Israelites worshipped in the proper way. Anyone else who tried to do the work of Moses and Aaron was to be put to death. So, so Moses and Aaron obeyed the Lord and counted the Levites by their clans. The total number of Levites, at least one month old, was 22,000. Lord said to Moses, make a list, count the firstborn sons, at least one month old, in each of the Israelite families. They belong to me, but I will accept the Levites as substitutes for them, and I will accept the Levites' livestock as substitutes for the Israelites' firstborn livestock. Moses obeyed the Lord and counted the firstborn sons. There were 22,273 of them. Then the Lord said, The Levites will belong to me and take the place of the firstborn sons. Their livestock will take the place of the Israelites' firstborn livestock. But since there are more firstborn sons than Levites, the extra 273 men and boys must be brought back from me. Must be bought back, excuse me, from me. For each one, you are to collect five pieces of silver weighed according to the official standards, this money must then be given to Aaron and his sons. Moses collected the silver from the extra 273 firstborn men and boys, and it amounted to 1,365 pieces of silver weighed according to the official standards. Then he gave it to Aaron and his sons, just as the Lord had commanded. Numbers chapter 4, Duties of the Kohathite Clans. The Lord told Moses and Aaron, Find out how many men between the ages of 30 and 50 there are in the four Levite clans of Kohath. Count only those who are able to work at the sacred tent. Let me just interject here if I can. Notice there is a time to count and there's a time not to count. This is the time to count, right? Numbers, by the way, in, in the Hebrew, it's um, the name of the book of Numbers is Bamidbar, Bamidbar, which is the Hebrew name for numbers. There is a time to count and there's a time not to count. Remember, David counted when he should not have counted. That was not the time to count. And it was a horrible, horrible punishment that he received from the Lord when he did. Like, 
many, many people died. Continuing with Numbers chapter 4, verse 4, the Kohathites were responsible for carrying the sacred objects used in worship at the sacred tent. When the Israelites are ready to move their camp, Aaron and his sons will enter the tent and take down the curtain that separates the sacred chest from the rest of the tent. They will cover the chest with this curtain. And then, with a piece of fine leather, and cover it all with a solid blue cloth. After this, they will put the carrying poles in place. So they must, they must cover the Ark of the Covenant appropriately. Verse 7. Next, Aaron and his sons will use another blue cloth to cover the table for the sacred bread. This is a table of showbread. Um, the sacred bread, it says here in the footnote, this bread was offered to the Lord and was a symbol of his presence in the sacred tent. It was put out on a special table and was replaced fresh bread each Sabbath, according to Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 to 9. On the cloth, they will place the dishes, the bowls for incense, the cups, the jugs for wine, as well as the bread itself. They are to cover all of this with a bright red cloth and, and then with a piece of fine leather before putting the carrying poles in place. Excuse me. With another blue cloth, they, they will cover the lampstand along with the lamps, the lamp snuffers, the fire pans, and the jars of oil for the lamps. All of this will then be covered with a piece of fine leather and placed on a carrying frame. The gold incense altar is to be covered with a blue cloth. Now the gold incense altar here in the footnotes, it says this altar for offering incense was inside the sacred tent. In other words, this, this was in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place. It was made of acacia wood covered with gold. A large altar for offering sacrifices was in front of the entrance uh, to the tent. It was made of acacia wood covered with bronze. So the, uh, so the gold incense altar is to be covered with a blue cloth, then with a piece of fine leather before its carrying poles are put in place. Next, Aaron and his sons will take the blue cloth and wrap all the objects used in worship at the sacred tent. These will need to be covered with a piece of fine leather, then placed on a carrying frame. They are to remove the ashes from the bronze altar and cover it with a purple cloth. On that cloth will be placed the utensils used at the altar, including the fire pans, the meat forks, the shovels, the sprinkling bowls. All of this will then be covered with a piece of fine leather before carrying the poles. Before carrying pole excuse me, before the carrying poles are put in place. Then the camp is ready to be moved. The Kohathites will be responsible for carrying the sacred objects and the furnishings of the sacred tent. But Aaron and his sons must have already covered those things so the, so the Kohathites won't touch them and die. Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, 
will be in charge of the oil for the lamps, the sweet-smelling incense, the grain for the sacrifices, and the olive oil used for dedications and ordinations. Eliezer is responsible for seeing that the sacred tent, its furnishings, and the sacred objects are taken care of. The Kohathites must not go near or even look at the sacred objects until Aaron and his sons have have covered those objects. If they do, their entire clan will be wiped out. So make sure that Aaron and his sons go into the tent with him and tell them what to carry. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, Find out how many men between the ages of 30 and 50 are in the two Levite clans of Gershon. Count only those who are able to work at the sacred tent. The Gershonites will be responsible for carrying the curtains of the sacred tent, its two outer coverings, the curtain for the entrance to the tent, the curtains hanging around the courtyard of the tent, and the curtain and ropes for the entrance to the courtyard. The Gershonites are to do whatever needs to be done to take care of these things, and they will carry them wherever Aaron and his sons tell them to. These are the duties of the Gershonites at the sacred tent, and Ithamar, son of Aaron, will make sure they will do they do their work. The Lord said, Moses, find out how many men between 30 and 50 are in the two Levite clans of Merari, and count only those who are able to work at the sacred tent. Mararites will be responsible for carrying the frames of the tent and its other pieces, including the bars, the posts, and the stands, as well as the posts that support the courtyard, together with their stands, tent pegs, and ropes. The Mararites are to be told exactly what objects they are to carry. And Ithamar, son of Aaron, will make sure they do their work. Moses, Aaron, and the other Israelite leaders obeyed the Lord and counted the Levite, or excuse me, the Levi tribe by families and clans to find out how many men there were between the ages of 30 and 50 who could work at the sacred tent. There were 2,750 Kohathites, 2,630 Gershonites, and 3,200 Marahites, making a total of 8,580. Then they were all assigned their duties. Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5. People are set, sent outside the camp. The Lord told Moses to say to the people of Israel, Put out of the camp everyone who has leprosy. Again, this would be the Sarat. Okay, so leprosy, the word translated leprosy was used for many kinds of skin diseases. This is what I explained before when we were talking about the leprosy in uh, the book of Leviticus, especially Leviticus chapter 13 and following. Uh, the Sarat uh, can mean leprosy, but it can also mean other skin diseases as well. So it's very, it's very important to understand that, um, especially those of you who are taking, you know, you take, let's take the Torah seriously, take the word of God seriously. It says a lot of things about leprosy. Keep in mind, it's not just leprosy, various skin diseases. 
Okay, so put out of the put out of the camp everyone who has leprosy or a bodily discharge or who has touched a dead body. Now that I live among my people, their camp must be kept clean. The Israelites obeyed the Lord's instructions. Okay, so the next section is the penalty for committing a crime. Um, I'm going to read this. Keep in mind, those of you who are in the live chat right now, I will answer, I will get to your questions shortly. Let me just read this here. Um, the penalty for committing a crime. The Lord told Moses to say to the community of Israel, if any of you commit a crime against someone who have sinned against, excuse me, you have sinned against me. This reminds me of uh, Matthew chapter 25, uh, the parable of the sheep and the goats, when, uh, you know, Jesus said, you know, if you fed the hungry, if you, if you, if you visited the, those in prison, if you did it, you did them to me, right? He, he takes it personally. The way you or anyone, it depends. The way people treat God's people, he takes it personally. He takes it personally. And I don't say that lightly because there are there's so many people today, especially even people in authority in the world today, who are mistreating the people of God. According to opendoors.org, very, very conservative. I mean, the numbers on open doors are very, very conservative. Uh, even According to the website itself, it says that these numbers are very, very um, low. Uh, they're not. Uh, they're not over exaggerated by any means. If anything, it's under exaggerated or under the actual the actual number because they only report what they what they uh, what they they only report what's really actually provable. But they've say they say that two hundred and I think it's 60, 260 million Christians today live in oppression, oppressed by the governments that they live under. 200, uh, how many? 200, two, over 200 million. Let's see if I can pull it up. Open doors. Or it's, it's way over 200 million, 260 million or more. Uh, you know what? I'm out. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm. Uh, I'm out. Outdated here. Um, this is open doors. Let me show you guys. Open doors. World Watch list 2022. More than 360 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith okay so um very important christianity now i'm not talking about just in the west i'm not talking about just in america okay because people in america by and large they are in their own little bubble and they don't understand what's going on around the world but the totality of all the numbers in the world proves that Christianity is the most hated group of people in the world. The most hated, the most per persecuted, the most oppressed. 
minority in the world. Yet they get how much protection in the West? Let me say that again because it's very important. Christians are the most hated, most persecuted, most oppressed people in the world. Yet, how much protection do they get in the West? I know Christians that have been spit upon, that have had bodily fluids spilt on them, just because of their faith in America and in Canada. If you commit a crime against someone, God said, you have sinned against me. You must confess your guilt and pay the victim in full whatever damage has been done, plus a fine of 20%. If the victim has no relative who can accept this money, it belongs to me and will be paid to the priest. In addition to that payment, you must take a ram for the priest to, sac to sacrifice so your sin will be forgiven. When you make a donation to the sacred tent, that money belongs only to the priest, and each priest will keep what is given to him. This is a very, very, very amazing uh, portion of scripture here, the suspicious husband. And let me say this. I will never forget this is another thing, too. I wish I would have taken note of the actual name of the book. I was a, I was in, uh, I was a teenager just shortly after I came to the Lord, okay? And I went to uh, a library, and I was just browsing the library, and I, I opened this book, and it was a book about the various miracles that, that, have ha that has happened. And in this book, there is a story of a woman who, who was tested for adultery, very similar to what we're about to read here, okay? And a very similar thing happened to that woman. It's amazing. Let me read this story first, and I'll let you know what I read in that book. This is the Word of God. Numbers chapter 5, verse 11. The Lord told Moses, Say to the people of Israel, Suppose a man becomes jealous and suspects that his wife has been unfaithful, but he has no proof. He must take his wife to the priest, together with one kilogram of ground barley, as an offering to find out if she is guilty. No olive oil or incense is to be put on that offering. The priest, again, incense stands for prayer, okay? Olive oil, uh, you could say this stands for like the spirit, okay, the prayer. Verse 16, the priest will lead the woman to my altar and make her stand there. He will, he will then pour sacred water into a clay jar and stir some of the dust from the floor of the sacred tent. Next, he will remove her veil then hand her the barley offering and say, if you have been faithful to your husband, this water won't harm you. 
But if you have been unfaithful, it will bring down the Lord's curse. You will never be able to give birth to a child, and everyone will curse your name. Then the the woman will answer, If I am guilty, let it happen just as you say. The the priest will write these curses on a special paper and wash them off into the bitter water. So that when the woman drinks this water, the curses will enter her body. He will will take the barley offering from her and lift it up in dedication to me, the Lord. Then he will place it on my altar and burn part of it as a sacrifice. After that, the woman must drink the bitter water. If has been unfaithful, the water will immediately make her unable to have, and she will be a curse among her people. But if she is innocent, her body will not be harmed, and she will still be able to have children. This ceremony must take place at my altar when a husband suspects that his wife is unfaithful. The priest must tell the woman to stand in my presence and carefully follow these instructions. If the husband is wrong, he will not be punished. But if, he, if, his, wife, if his wife is guilty, she will be punished. Okay, so we'll read Numbers chapter 6 here. In a moment, rules for the Nazarites. Now, this is very, very important, very, very interesting. But that book that I read, um, it spoke of a church that actually did this long ago. It was a very, very old book. It must have been, I don't know, just guessing. I don't know, 100 years old more. I don't know. It was an old book, very old book. Uh, And it spoke of a church that actually did this. Um. And but they didn't they didn't make the woman drink the water. They made the woman put her arm into the water. And apparently they said when this when the woman put her arm into the water, brought it out, her skin was very well like basically just peeled off. Uh and uh and so that's how they knew that she was guilty of 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 that sin. Now, you know, we got many different things like this throughout the scriptures. Now, you would think this sounds kind of almost like a almost like um witchcraft or something, right? You got like taking the dust off of the floor and putting it into and mixing it together with, you know, this and that. Um you know, people who read the apocrypha, one of the may I add very stupid objections to the apocrypha is that it contains you know sorcery or something like that witchcraft which it doesn't okay but if that story was in the apocrypha they would say the same thing okay this is this is witchcraft this is sorcery they're they're they're, mis- they're mixing the dust off the floor with you know some ground up barley and they're putting in them making a potion and they're having you know it's not no it's it it is the word of god and so how would how does this work and how could this work well Again, inanimate objects can be a conduit for the spiritual realm. I got a question here on TikTok. Christopher, what's your opinion on Friday slash Saturday Sabbath versus Lunar Sabbath? Uh, I spoke about this last night, actually, on the live stream. Um, So 
I have not, I, I do have to say, I, I have not done a whole lot of research or digging into the whole lunar calendar thing, lunar, lunar Sabbath thing. Also, I will also say this. I have heard people talk about it. I have heard of the different, I, I, I have heard of some um, teaching on it. And there is nothing that I can say that I, that I would say is convincing evidence that that is actually the calendar we should go by. Um, having said that, if there's anybody who has evidence, good, a good argument, a good evidence for it, I'm willing to look at it. Uh, I'm willing to reconsider. And I mean, hey, we, we always have to be like that. All of us, we all have to be, we should always be open, honest, humble. Hey, you know what? Basically, you know, convince me. Convince me. We should be willing to listen to one another, willing to li listen to one another's arguments. Um, if there's something out there that I think that, that you think that I should see, you know, bring it to my attention. I may or may not agree with it or accept it. Uh, so, yeah, when it comes to the lunar Sabbath and all that kind of thing, I have not seen convincing evidence that that is actually the, the calendar that should be followed. We know that history tells us that the Jewish people for thousands of years have always followed you know, the, uh, you know, the traditional Jewish calendar. And uh, at this point, I don't see any reason why I don't see, I don't see any evidence can, I don't put it this way. I don't see any convincing evidence against that. And I don't see any convincing evidence for the lunar Sabbath. Having said that, um, I still do observe the Friday evening to Saturday evening Sabbath. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right. I know a lot of people believe it. I know a lot of people buy into it, but I'm, I don't want to buy into something too quickly. I, don't, I just don't see the evidence for it. That's all. Vinny over there on YouTube says, a pastor told me all days are equal. I said, but God sanctified and hallowed the seventh day, making it sacred, so God set it apart and separated it. He didn't agree? I don't know how he couldn't agree to that. It's, I mean, it's right there in the scriptures. I don't know. You, and it never ceased to amaze me. You know, in Yeshua's day, he was he marveled at their unbelief. He marveled at their Lack of education, like have you not read? Do you not know? I mean, yeah. Vinny says what he basically said was because God rested and did no work on the seventh day, not like the other days where he worked, making it just another day like the rest. Well, <laughs> I, yeah, you know. Um, the idea is be holy as, as God is holy. You know, imitate when God rested on the seventh day, so we should rest on the seventh day. Even Jesus said, be perfect as the heavenly father is perfect. 
God, we read about it so many times. God says, be holy as I'm holy. God, I mean, he could have rested every day. If every day was equal, he could have rested every day. He could have said, okay, I'm going to take, you know, so many hours and then I'll just rest. I'm take so many hours of rest. He rests every day. But he, he, he specifically allotted the seventh day for rest. The Great Deception says, shalom, everyone. Shalom, welcome. Good to see you. Going nowhere says, does God love Satan? No. Remember, and this is this is a thing as well. A lot of people say, well, God is love. Well, yeah, God is love. But God is light. Light does not love darkness. But God is judge, right? God is holy, which means holiness does not love filthy, stinking, sinning, does not love unholiness. That's what makes it separate. So... Just because God is love does not mean he extends that attribute to everybody, everything. That's not what it means. If that's the case, it says, and we read about Nadab and Abihu being consumed instantly by the fire of God, left as, I mean, talk about instant cremation on the spot, piles of ashes. Uh, sorry about this uh, noise here. Hold on a second. Talk about instant cremation, piles of ashes. Um, yeah, so it says in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Okay, so yes, it says God is love, but it also says God is a consuming fire. So let me just say this. If God is love means that he extends that attribute to everyone, just because he is something, does that mean he, extend, he extends that attribute to everyone and everything? Well, again, God is love, yeah, but God is a consuming fire, okay? So if God is love means that God extends love to everyone and everything, that means that God consumes everyone and everything instantly by fire and burns everybody to a crisp just because that's what he is. You know what I'm getting at? I hope, uh, hope you guys are understanding me. Bottom line is this. Just because God is something doesn't mean he extends that attribute to everybody and everything. Otherwise, we would never exist. We would never have existed. Creation would have never been even a thing um, because God is a consuming fire. Um, yeah, so God is holy. He certainly doesn't love unholiness. Uh, Thomas says, what is the AMP version of the Bible? Do you mean amplified version of the bible amplified version if that's what you're talking about is a version that is they try to take they they add a lot of definitions from the original language and it it, it used to be a thing way back in the early nine, 1990s the amplified version if that's again if that's what you're talking about it used to be a big thing People used to like the amplified version, not so much anymore, um, because I think it's a lot, you know, it's biased, right? It's biased. It's better just to learn the Hebrew or the Greek, or at least to do word studies uh, for yourself. 
I got I got myself like I have an amplified Bible myself. I do, but I ne- I don't even know the last time I've read it. I can't remember. Going nowhere. Why did God reject Esau's repentance? He did not repent. That's the thing. Esau did not repent. Or else, I mean, he could not repent. Don't confuse the word repentance with the word regret. Oh, he regretted it. Yes. Don't confuse the word repentance from uh, with the word, um, you know, um, with being sorry, you know. Oh, he was sorry. For sure he was very sorry. He regretted it. Yes. But he did not find repentance. The word repentance means change. Okay. I know some people might, they might say, oh, no, no. In the, in the, in the, uh, in the Greek, the word metanoia means to change your mind. Well, okay. That's what it says in Strong's dictionary. With all due respect to Strong's, that particular definition does not fit properly in the uses, in the usage of that word in Hebrews chapter 12. Because Hebrews chapter 12 says that Esau sought repentance with tears, but could not get it, could not find it. Um, So he was sorry, right? He had a lot of regret. He had a lot of remorse. But repentance is not remorse. Repentance is not regret. Repentance is not sorrow. Repentance is change. Esau could not change things. He could not change the, the situation. That's what it meant. So that's why uh, his repentance couldn't stick because he did something that he could not undo. Thank you for your question. Going nowhere. Yes, Thomas, quoting from uh, Matthew chapter 25, Yeshua said, what you do to the least of these, you do to me. Great Deception says, I like the Apocrypha. Yes, absolutely. It is a must read for every serious Bible student for sure. It should never have been dropped out of the Bible in my in my opinion. Going nowhere says, do you think there was night in Eden? That is a big question. It's a good question. It's a good question. But that's a big, that's a biggie because the question is, what was the Garden of Eden? Right. So there are some things and some documents, some scriptures that makes it sound like it's a it's a spiritual place. It's paradise. Now there are some that makes it sound like it's a physical place, but the physical description or the geograph the like the geographical location of it is not even in, in existence on earth. You know, the, it, it just doesn't exist. Not, and I don't mean that the garden of Eden doesn't exist. I mean, the description of the geographical location is it, it's not even an earthly description. Yes, it says like the Gihon River and the Euphrates River and this kind of river, but that doesn't even come together the way it says it comes together uh, on earth. So the question is, is it even an earthly thing? Could it, could it have been a spiritual state while Adam and Eve was living on earth that they existed in, a, in the spiritual state in the Garden of Eden? 
I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge topic. So there's a, there's a few things to think about uh, going nowhere. As the spirit says, Thomas study the scriptures. Amen. Be a Berean. Absolutely. Is what we say all the time. Uh, the great deception says hate evil and thirst for righteousness. Yes, absolutely. And may I add too, as well, uh, righteousness, righteousness is not what modern Christianity would tell you it is. Modern Christianity would tell you that righteousness is just faith in Jesus. It's not. It really isn't. Uh, at least not the way they define it, okay? I mean, it is in one sense, because if you really have faith in Jesus, you will be obeying the commandments, because Jesus taught the commandments, and Jesus lived the commandments. So if you really have faith in him, yes, then you will be you will be doing, practicing righteousness. But righteousness is not just some invisible, you know, cloak that you that you put on that covers your sin. And no, it's not like some rug that you throw over the mess that you have. No, I mean God wants you to clean up. Right? That's what repentance is all about: cleaning up, not not throwing a rug over the the stinking mess, but cleaning it up. So. To seek his righteousness, to seek God's righteousness is, the number one, to find out what he says is right. Like, what does God say? What does God say is right? What does God say is wrong? According to God, what is right and wrong? And I want to seek what's right, his righteousness. I want to do what's right according to his word. Yes, exactly. Righteousness is obeying the commandments. Yes, practicing. Uh, as it says in, oh, it says that so many, so many places. Book of James is a really good one. First John, second John, third John speaks a lot about practicing righteousness, practicing righteousness. You know, if you guys don't know the story of the emperor's new clothes, check it out. The emperor's new clothes, because that, although that's a that's fiction, that's a fictitious story, yet it's not really in a way because that is that is the reality of many Christians. They think they're clothed with the so-called righteousness of Christ, but really they are just like the emperor's new, like the emperor who is wearing the new clothes. Spoiler, just so you know. The emperor's new clothes was clothes that he thought that existed, but it didn't exist. He didn't have clothes, but he was brainwashed to believe that he did have clothes, and that's the that's the whole idea. And that's what a lot of Christians are like today. They're brainwashed to believe that they're righteous in God's sight just because they've said a sinner's prayer. That's not the truth at all, especially if they've never repented. It's all about repentance. It's all about repentance. So let's see what we got here. Someone asked me a question about what do I on TikTok about what do I feel about Pastor Greg Locke and what he's saying about witches and pagans? I I don't know what he says about that. 
I don't know. So I, I can't really comment to that. So I don't, I don't know what he teaches or what he says about that. Let's read one of the most intriguing, very, very important passages of Scripture, Numbers chapter 6. This is really, really good. This is talking about the Nazarite vow, and we close it off with the Aaronic blessing. They call it the blessing or the priestly blessing, the blessing for the people. You know, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Um, very, very important. Amazing part of, of scripture here. Let's read that together. By the way, you guys, I want to, before I get into this, um, I don't know how many of you know this, but we do have a podcast. We, our live streams, I'm taking, at, at the moment, I'm taking the live streams and posting them as podcasts, right? So I'm doing a live stream right now. I'm live on TikTok and on YouTube. Um, and so after the fact, I am gonna, I am taking this the, the live stream and uh, extracting the audio from it and posting it uh, as a podcast. And you can, you know, if you're, you know, busy, you know, you don't want to watch the video or if you're in your car or you're traveling and you want to listen to some of the things that we've already uh, read and discussed. We've we've read and discussed so many things, right? So many things. Um, so if you want to do that, you know, you can find me on almost every major pod podcasting platform out there right now, and uh, look me up, Christopher Enoch. You'll be able to uh, to listen to some podcasts while you travel or however you want to do it while you go for your daily jog or whatever you're doing. And so, yeah. Also, don't forget to share. If there's somebody, you know, if the Lord brings somebody to your mind that you think, hey, you know, there's a person, maybe it's a, d a distant friend or a distant relative or, or even a close friend or a close relative that may benefit, may be open to what we're talking about, um, send them a message. Say, hey, check this out. Check out this live stream. Send them a message. And, um, you know, Lord willing, they'll come on board and we'll have a great discussion. All right, so let's talk about Numbers chapter 6. The rules for the Nazarites, or as more commonly known as the Nazarite vow. I'm going to read this. Uh, okay, Numbers chapter 6. The law of the Nazarite. Our Cater GT, I see you put in uh, another uh, comment in there that's almost exactly like how you you asked. This is pretty much the same question as you asked before. We've already answered that question, our Cater. Um, yeah. So. Thomas says, yep, I I agree. There is no sinner's prayer in the scriptures. You know, I remember the first time I heard that back in 1992, 1992. And at that time, unfortunately, I think maybe it was 93, 92. Yeah, 92. Um, and at that time, unfortunately, I've already kind of fallen into what I now call the like the modern Christian narrative, at least maybe not fully, but somewhat at least to the point where i i i really believed in saying the sinner's prayer at least getting other people to say it and i heard someone actually on tv say that they said 
You know, the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. And initially, I, I confess, initially, I, I got offended. It's kind of funny now when I come to think about it, when I look back, it's like, well, I got offended at that because someone said, the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. And, and right away, I'm like, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, thinking to myself, right? Well, it's not in the Bible, but the concept is there. But now I see what the, uh, it was, it's a really good point. When the disciples went around preaching the gospel, they did not lead anybody into the sinner's prayer. In the book of Acts, when they went preaching the gospel, when people, when the, when the people came to their fellowship and asked to get saved, when they preached the sermons, they did not do altar calls and, and say the sinner's prayer. No. In fact, their, their bottom line, number one message was simply repent and believe. And again, the word repent means to change, not just feel sorry for your sins. That's not what it means. In fact, by definition, you can repent without feeling sorry for your sins. It's not a command to really feel sorry for your sins. Although that's that's a good thing. But it's not really a command to feel sorry for your sins. It's a command to repent. Right? You can free, you can you can change, you can stop sinning without really feeling sorry for your sins and if, as long as you stop for good, you're good. You're good. That's really the bottom line. That's all that, you know. That's that's what God is concerned about the most. Stop it and don't do it again. That's it. Some people need to be struck with sorrow in order to get to that point. Or some people need to be struck with a lot of other things to get to that point. But blessed are you if you don't need to be struck at all, that you just hear the word of God and you just, you just turn. You just turn. Say my name, 1094 says, I would love to speak to you about what's going on with the Christians versus pagans and pick your brain. I would like to define, first of all, I mean, it's, it's it, when you say Christians versus pagans, it's very ambiguous because most of the time, <laughs> most of the time when people say they're Christians, they're talking about Christians, it's not real Christianity. And pagans can be defined as different things as well. So it all depends on, on how you define those terms. Sometimes when I say Christians, I'm talking about the anybody who believes they're a Christian, like the people who go to church and people who are the churchgoers or believers in Jesus and they think they're Christian. They're, they're really not. Um, other times when I say Christian, I'm talking about the real deal. I'm talking about the real, you know, notes ream in of the of the book of Acts. I'm talking about the real people who really go by the teachings of Yeshua and follow his example and, and live according to the instructions of God. Yeah. I mean, uh, say my name if you have like, yeah, if you want to, if you want to ask me some more questions, you're welcome to just, uh, I would ask like what, uh, let's get, let's start with some definitions. How do you define Christian and how do you define pagan? Yeah, it's 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 uh, it all depends on how you define. You see, this is this is where this is where it's all it all comes down to this, right? Um, God has the final say in everything. It He's the one that determined 
that people are to only live a certain length of time. And then that's it, six feet under. Okay. He's the ultimate authority. He is worthy to be feared. It says in the scriptures, and it's abs- the absolute truth, that the fear of the Lord is, is just the beginning of wisdom. And there's a lot of people, this is the problem. There's a, there are a lot of people out there. They don't, even, they don't even know what the fear of the Lord is, let alone do it. And so they're far from, there's, no, there's not an iota of wisdom in them at all. Not even close to being wise. The bottom line is this, like you really want to be on the right side of history you need to get really, really serious with God. And this is the thing. It's not about what you feel is right and wrong. Forget about that. Because so much brainwashing in the world today. So much. Even just 10 years ago, people thought so much different than they do today. Let alone 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Okay? It's a lot, a lot of brainwashing. So if you're really serious with God, which everybody should be, because if you don't get serious with God, you're going to have some serious problems in the future, I tell you that much. And that's, I'm just telling you the truth, right? And that's the reason, that's one of the reasons why we're here. I mean, we want, we love people. We don't want to see the, we want to see the best for people. But there's, there is, a, there is a, a, a tug of war going on. The natural desires of, of the human race tugs against God's holy and good, righteous word. And so you need to get to the point where you say, you know what, it doesn't matter what I think is right and wrong. What I need to do is really get serious with God and say, God, I want to know. And I, 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 I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm seriously, desperately hungry to, to know what you, God, say is right and wrong. In the Western world, we have different idea of what right and wrong is compared to in the Eastern world. In North Korea, a lot of these people have a completely different idea of what right and wrong is compared to even South Korea. So you need to understand, you need to get to the point where you say, you know what, what I think is good or okay or acceptable needs to be tested, needs to be challenged. You need to be humble enough to say, hey, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. So you need, to, you need to say, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter what I feel. It, it matters what God says. He has, the final, he has the final say. He has the final say. And it doesn't matter, honestly. I mean, like, you know, a lot of people are like little children now, right? It's like you tell them something's wrong. It's like, oh, boo, 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 hoo, boo, hoo. Like they're just crying. Like, oh, how? You know, this is the way little children are. 
right? You can tell them, oh, the stove, don't touch that stove, it's too hot, right? And I guarantee you, if it's a little toddler, that child is going to cry thinking that you hate them. They're going to be offended. They're going to be offended. And that's the way a lot of people are today, especially in the West, because the people today in the West are so spoiled. So, so spoiled. They don't know what hard times are. They'd never be able to exist if they went back 150 years. Never be able to exist. They wouldn't be like grown babies out in the, in the middle of the field. So the, the thing is this. It's either you get serious with God or God gets serious with you. And if God gets serious with you, <laughs> I don't know what to say. Okay? I don't know what to say. It's all about humbling yourself. It's all about humbling yourself and saying, you know what? I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to pursue what's right, even if it hurts. As it says, most people say the truth hurts, right? So the question is, how do I know my God is correct? How do you know your God is correct and mine's not? I'm not sure even whose God you have. I can tell you this, though. Uh, let me tell you this. I have lived in a very secular, sinful lifestyle for far too long. I know what it's like. I know firsthand experience what it's like. I can tell you how empty it is. I can tell you how empty it is. In the summer of 1992, I got to that point. I'm not, I, I'm not preaching what I didn't practice. I practiced it. I got to that point in my life where I, I got to the, I, I woke up. I'm like, I realized that the world is empty. I was on, according to the world, according to the world, I was on, I, I was like, I was doing a, you know, I was in a band. We wrote a lot of our own songs. We, we played around all kinds of places. We, we didn't even have to, we didn't even have to uh, advertise. I had a contract waiting for me in Hollywood with the band. Had everything you can imagine. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, baby. The whole thing. The whole, the whole nine yards. And God got a hold of me. God got a hold of me. In 1992. July of 1992. And God invaded my life. God invaded my life. He instantly... He instantly and completely set me free from drinking, smoking, drugs, sexual immorality, filthy language, and completely changed my heart instantly. I don't know of any other God that can do that. No other God can do that. 
And yes, I used to have friends that did serve other gods. The very same God you just mentioned there, say my, say my name. I did have friends that served that God. And I can tell you, 100%, 100%, that God is nothing compared to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the God of Jesus, to the God of the Bible. Nothing. The strongest God wins. And what I've seen, what I've experienced firsthand, and also what I've seen in other people's lives, is firsthand proof, firsthand evidence that the strongest God in the universe is the God who can set you free from, sin, from a sinful lifestyle. Because it's empty. Going Nowhere asks on YouTube, does God know things that will happen in the future? Absolutely he does. Uh, we see that through the scriptures all the way through, the, even so far that we've read this. Um, Genesis, right? God told Abraham. God told Adam what would happen in the future. Your seed will crush the serpent's head. But that serpent will strike his heel. Bible prophecy. God told Abraham, your seed will go into Egypt 400 and some odd years. And then we'll be brought out of Egypt. Much of the scriptures, much of the Bible is about God telling, this, telling the future, foretelling the future. In fact, he said himself, I, I know the, the end from the beginning. I declare the end from the beginning. It's all there. Everything is there. Why? Because God, you see, a lot of people, their God is time. A lot of people's gods, their God is time. In other words, they, in their own mind, in their own, their own strange theology, time is more, more powerful than anything. But the truth of the matter is, God is outside of time. He looks at time beginning to end as if it's one. He sees the whole thing as if it's a timeline. Like we're, we're, you know, like it's almost like the, um, when you're watching a video, right? When you got the little, um, the little, uh, little ball that goes across, right? Or a little marker that goes across. God sees the whole thing all at once. He, and we're at a certain point in time, but God sees the end. He sees everything. For sure. Great Deception says, I also played guitar in Hollywood metal band in the 80s. Very interesting. Going Nowhere says, why does God hate sin so much? Because he's so good. He's so good. How old was Jesus when he died? We can, the scriptures don't really tell us, okay? Um, we can only go by the extra biblical account of, of, of Jesus. And they say it was around, they say around 33, give or take, the age 33, give or take. Okay, so let's get into this. 
Yeah, Thomas said here, uh, I grew up in a Baptist church. In my teens, I turned unto other wickedness, but when turned toward the Abba and I got serious, I found out I had been lied to. Yeah, and isn't that something? I mean, it's 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 very difficult for people to to um, to accept because when people believe something, when somebody believes something, it's like they really stake a lot of the they stake a lot into into something, and and so it's hard. I I think a lot of times it's hard for people to even come to the point of saying I could be wrong. Question from going nowhere. Does sexual desire come from God? Yeah, he created it. Uh, the thing is, is you have to m make sure that it's um, handled in the proper way, right? So, I mean, the primary purpose uh, is is for procreation. Um, and God sets out, sets out uh, his instructions on how to, um, how to manage that. So, Okay. All right. So let's go back to Numbers chapter six. This is Numbers chapter six, verse one, the law of the Nazarite. Uh, keep in mind, there are a few people in the scriptures that have uh, for sure taken the, the vow of the Nazarite. You know, Samson was one. John the Baptist was another. I do believe that Yeshua himself did uh, for many different reasons. I think that uh, we have some evidence that really uh, would point to that. Uh, we know from Hegesippus, the writings of Hegesippus, that James, one of the closest of the disciples of Jesus, also was a Nazarite. So I don't know why uh, Yeshua would not be the, uh, a Nazarite. Uh, just again, before I get into talking about this, it's very important to understand that this vow of the Nazarite is, for the most part, optional. Okay? Again, someone like Samson or John the Baptist, uh, James, and I think Jesus himself, uh, although we don't have a whole lot of scriptural evidence for that, although we do have some, we do have clues that do lead us to that, you know, to the, uh, you know, his, his physical appearance was one, uh, the fact that he did not take the wine at the, at the last supper was another one. He did not eat the meat or he did, ha did not have lamb. Uh, another one, he ate only fish. That's another one. Uh, there's no, there's, there's lots of, there, there are lots of little clues like that, that would tell us that I believe that Yeshua more than likely was under the vow of the Nazarite. The idea is this, that if you are a Torah observer, in other words, you obey the Torah to the best of your ability, that's good. You're good. You're, you're, you're good with God. Okay, you're good. But this is a vow that is optional. It's kind of like the Torah on overdrive. It's kind of like, like nitro in your tank for, the, for Torah observance. So it's like, if you want to go that extra mile, if you want to go, if you want to be extra holy or extra observant, that is what the law of the Nazarite is for. So reading on here, verse one, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take 
the vow of the Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. In other words, anything probably alcoholic. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Now, let's talk about this for a sec. Uh, first of all, the footnote here on verse 2 says separation as a Nazarite as opposed to consecrate. So, uh, in other words, it says uh, when either a man or a woman separates, um, let me see, separation as a Nazarite, uh, consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. He shall separate himself from the wine. Okay, so and also here, verse uh, 4. Oh, excuse me. I said I said separation. The first one was makes a difficult vow. The next one is separation as a Nazarite. So all the days of his separation as a Nazarite, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. And then here it says, when either a man or a woman takes a difficult vow. Okay. So again, this is like, this is like the Torah on overdrive. This is the reason why in Acts chapter 21, he, um, James and the elders of the church demanded, or not demanded, but rather advised that Paul take the vow of the Nazarite to prove that he's not against the Torah. Because this is like, hey, taking the vow of the Nazarite to prove that you're not against the Torah is, is like going skydiving to prove that you're not scared of heights. It's the ultimate. It's the ultimate proof. Because taking the vow of the Nazarite binds you to certain commandments that are over and above that which already exists. Let me say it again, because I, I, maybe some of, I think some of you might not really have, maybe you didn't catch that. Taking the vow of the Nazarite to prove that you're not against the Torah is like going skydiving to prove that you're not scared of heights. It's the ultimate form of of what you're trying to prove. You know, you're trying to prove that you're for the Torah? Take the vow of the Nazarite. That's the ultimate proof. I mean, that mean taking the vow of the Nazarite saying, I'm obeying all the commandments of the Torah that apply to me, plus the vow, the these extra stringent, strict rules, that's the ultimate of, of Torah observance. It's like, hey, you want to prove you're not scared of heights? Go skydiving. Okay, so why is it that they did not allow the Nazarite to eat or to eat any kind of product from grapes? Not wine, not grape juice, fresh grapes, raisins, seeds, anything. Why? How is that? Because in the scriptures, grapes symbolize, well, it's kind of strange to say this, but it's true. It's, grapes symbolize people. And when you read about it in uh, Isaiah, for example, in other parts of Scripture as well, when the Lord comes back, it says in the last day to 
wipe out the unbelievers, to wipe out the, the godless people, to crush them, literally, as it says in the book of Revelation, so that the blood reaches the top of the bridle of the horses, and the horse is like a river of blood. The picture of that is the Lord treading out the grapes in the wine press, right? So the grapes being trodden in the wine press is a picture of people being. <laughs> I don't want to get too graphic here, but I think you know you hear what I'm saying. Okay. So the idea that you're not supposed to take you're not supposed to consume any products of the grape of a grape, grape, well, again, grape juice, wine, grape skin, grape seed. This the spiritual significance of that is simply peace. It's it's so it's it's a it's an earthly, I guess you would say it's a material representation of peace. Because if the final war and the blood that spilt during the final war is symbolized by the Lord crushing the grapes under his feet, those grapes are symbolized are, are symbolizing people. And the crushing of the grapes and the and the grape juice is symbolizing the blood of the people. So the opposite is what we're reading about here in the in the vow of the Nazarite. That is no war, peace, not you know, not drawing blood. Okay, peace. That's really what this is symbolizing. That's what it, what that's what is uh, what it means. That's the picture behind this. It's a vow of peace. It's a vow of holiness. And to express this vow, you don't touch anything from the grape. I mean, you're not, I shouldn't say don't touch, but don't consume any product of, of the grapevine, of the vineyard. Moving on, Numbers chapter 6, verse 5. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow. All the days that he that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall go, he shall not go near a dead body. Okay. So verse five is about the hair. Again, this whole idea of the hair, um, and obviously, in this context, is talking about men growing long hair. We see that again with Samson. We see that with John the Baptist. Traditionally, he has he had long hair, and I do believe he did have long hair. And that's again because of the vow of the Nazarite. Yeshua, Jesus, traditionally spoken, and we do have historical evidence, such as that letter of to what is it, letter of Lentulus, and other like, different things like that. Uh, that would tell us his, from a historical point of view that Yeshua did have long hair. Um, James, we don't know for sure. It doesn't say anywhere that he had long hair. However, it does say that he was basically under the Nazarite vow in Hegesippus, which would lead me to believe he did, ha he did have long hair as well. So again, the long hair represents, um, it's almost like, <laughs> 
I hate to maybe, you know, the hippies had long hair, right? So the hip, the, the idea of uh, long hair is more like, you know, not so much like a not so militant kind of looking, you know, if you know what I'm talking about, not so militant, but more peaceful and, um, yeah, just that look, uh, now we know that Paul said in his in his letters that it's shameful for a man to have long hair, but of course that's not uh, that's not applicable to this particular circumstance of taking the Nazarite vow. We know that Paul himself took the Nazarite vow in Acts chapter twenty one, which means he he had to have grown his hair at least somewhat. So it's not shameful for a man to have long hair. Uh, in the scriptures, only according to Paul in that culture, for sure. In the, in the Nazarite vow, those who dedicate themselves to the Lord in this degree um, did have to grow their hair. By the way, that's, that's the reason why Samson lo- uh, lost his strength, too. It wasn't so much that his strength was in his hair. The problem was when he cut his long hair, he broke the Nazarite vow and God said, see ya. God was his strength. There was no magical component of his hair. It's just that Samson tempted God one too many times. Remember, he actually ate out of a dead car- a lion's carcass. He ate honey out of a lion's carcass. That is breaking the Nazarite vow. Okay, so he broke the Nazarite vow more than once, and finally God just said, "Okay, enough is enough. I'm out of here. You have to deal with it. You have to. (laughs) Your strength, i.e., the Lord, is gone. That's the reason why Samson lost his strength." Verse six: All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Again, Samson broke that. We know that. Um, Verse seven. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister, when they die because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. And if if anyone dies very suddenly beside him, like, you you know, Uncle Jack falls dead and he's right beside him, uh, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. Then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for him because he has sinned in regard to the corpse. And he shall sanctify his head that same day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in his first year as a trespass offering. But the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and he shall present his offering to the Lord so this offering, by the way, offering is an animal sacrifice, one male lamb in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering. Now, let me just go on over to, yeah, let me just go on over to Acts 
chapter 21, and I'll show you guys that you see these, uh, the apostles, James, all the leaders of the 12, the uh, the, the church, okay, um, they agreed to, to, to do all this. And this is a very, very important part of uh, uh, a piece of evidence. I mean, this is a, this is a very, very important to prove that the animal sacrifices did not um, cease in the lives of the believers, the Christians, when Jesus died and rose again. Okay? They continued to do animal sacrifices. The next day, Paul took the four men with him, got himself ready at the same time they did, and they went to the temple. Again, this is according to what we just read in Numbers chapter 6. By the way, this is Acts chapter 21, verses 20, verse 26. Acts 21, 26. Then he went into the temple and, and told when the final ceremony would take place and when the offering would be made for each of them. Now, the offering is... The offering, which is one male lamb in the first year without blemish as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb in the first year without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with, with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and their grain offering with their drink offerings. That's a lot. Okay? Again, we have proof that the sacrifices did not cease with the death of Yeshua. The 12 disciples continued with their sacrifices. The believers continued. <coughs> Excuse me. Very, very clear in Acts chapter 21, verse 26. And this, as I read this, this makes me, this reminds me too of how costly the Nazarite vow must have been. I mean, especially in regards to buying all these animals for sacrifice. One animal in and of itself is expensive. So expensive that in Leviticus chapter five, it says, if you can't afford a lamb, buy two turtle doves or two young pigeons. If you can't afford that, just fine flour would work. For and for atone for a sin offering for atonement for your sins, you know there's no blood in the in flour. Okay, for those of you who think that you, for those of you who think you need blood to atone for your sins, it's not according to the, that's not what the scriptures say. But anyway, that's beside the point. One lamb was very expensive, so much so that God made provisions for people who can't afford it in in Leviticus chapter five. But in, in, in this instance, the Nazarite vow, it, it, you had to buy way more than one lamb. You had to buy one lamb, one ewe lamb. There's two, okay? One ram, there's three, okay? Then the basket of unleavened bread, then the cakes of fine flour, then unleavened wafers uh, anointed with oil, and their grain offering, and their drink offerings. The fact that in Acts chapter 21, Paul had to, Paul had to um, buy all that for himself shows that he was a very rich man. Also, not only that, but it says in Acts chapter 21, he had to sponsor four other men. He had to sponsor four other men in that vow as well. So. To, with Paul, it, 
it not only cost him dearly once, but five times over. Once for himself and for four, four others. Um, they really made Paul pay dearly to prove that he wasn't against the Torah. Again, sorry about that, guys. Uh, Numbers chapter 6, verse 16. Then the priest shall bring them before the Lord and his and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. And the priest shall offer shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering. Then the Nazarite shall shave his his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket and one unleavened wafer and put them on the the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated hair. And the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy for the priest, together with the, with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the, the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord the offering for his separation. And besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. Powerful, powerful, guys. This is powerful. The priestly blessing. And before I get in, before I get into that, let's um, let me just let me just go into see what you guys got going here in the comments. Yeah. So Mark says. I was reading something that said that the original text says Jesus of Nazarite and that Jesus of Nazareth was mistranslated. Yeah, very interesting. Of course, it's a very it's the same root word, uh, Nazarite versus Nazareth Jesus of Nazareth. Um, I've had one pastor tell me it was Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus the Nazarite. Well, I mean it's kind of a play on words there. I do believe he was uh, under the Nazarite vow for sure. Mark said, I also read something saying that a Nazarite is a protector of the word. Very interesting. You know, the word Nazarite, not seer uh, in the Hebrew also means the branch too. A branch or rod, right? And we know that one of the names of Yeshua in the, in the Old Testament, so I hate saying Old Testament, the Tanakh, okay, is the branch, the branch. So these words are all interrelated. They're all connected together. Nazareth, Nazarite, and branch or rod. Going nowhere, says, I've always wondered why the Song of Solomon was included in the Bible. Yeah, and there were people that did not believe that it should be in the Bible. Then they finally decided, yeah, we'll put it in the Bible. Um, it'll just show God's love for his people or some, something like that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting that it is in the Bible. I, I, will, I, I, do, uh, I do agree with you on that. Um, you know, having said that, I know that a lot of you, a lot of you know that... Uh, I'm not really a big fan of Bible canon anyway. I think that all of the books of the Bible should be kept separately and everybody should read all of them. 
and 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 all the extra biblical books as well. And you know, and use your use a good critical thinking mind. And uh, I mean, that's the way it was in the in in the Book of Acts. They didn't have the so called Bible. Everything was kept separately. I mean, they had the books of the Tanakh, but they didn't have it put together in one book and called the Holy Bible. Yes, the great deception, Yahuwah's commands are eternal. Absolutely. It is the word of God, and the word of God is eternal. Because God's eternal. And Psalm 119, verse 89, Your word, O Lord, is forever settled in heaven. Yes, the Great Deception mentions the priestly blessing. Yes, very very good. As you guys know, I, I use the priestly blessing every live stream. Okay, so let's... Numbers chapter 6, the priestly blessing, also known as the Aaronic blessing, Aharon very, very famous, by the way. Um, this is second here. We've got Christine Walker said, why did you ditch TikTok? Sorry about that. Uh, the reason be, the reason being is I only have like 3% left on my phone right now of battery power. So I, I, if I didn't ditch it right now, uh, it would have been cut, you know? Um, yeah. So sorry about that. Welcome here anyway. Welcome. Good to see you. Okay. So, um, you know, one thing I have to say before I read this, and this is, I find my grandmother would say it's comical. It's comical. And it is kind of comical in a way. A lot of Christians, a lot of Christians, they they love this, right? They quote it. They pray over. They pray this over one another. They even wrote that song, right? That song, you know, uh, the 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 blessing. I'm sure probably some of you, at least some of you, heard that song, the blessing. You know, Carrie Job sings it in this. You know, the blessing. So a lot of Christians, they love it. They love this. But yet, if you quote anything else from the Torah, this is Torah. This is Torah. The, the the blessing is Torah. They pick and choose, right? Now, I, this this applies to me, but no one, none, not in the commandments. Nothing else from the Torah does. But I thought you said the Torah is nailed to the cross. That means that why should you be quoting this blessing? It's the ironic blessing. It's the priestly blessing. You know, I thought Jesus put an end to the Torah, right? So why would you be quoting it? Why would you be say? Why would you be singing it? Why would you be praying it? Like I said, my grandmother would say that's comical. It's 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 a double standard. That's what it is. It's, it's a double standard. People uh, taking things that they like. They take they take the things that they like, and they the rest of it is no, no. That doesn't. No, no. That's nailed to the cross. He fulfilled it. You know, Jesus fulfilled it. He, you know, it's the, that was done away with. 
Okay, well, if the Torah is done away with, don't you ever, ever pray the, pre- the priestly blessing or don't you ever receive the, pre- the, pre- the priestly blessing from anybody because that's the Torah and that was nailed to the cross. Of course, I'm being sarcastic. The Torah is definitely in effect forever to all it applies to, to everyone, to the stranger, to the Israelite, to the Jew, to the Gentile, everyone, to whom, whosoever will. Okay, Numbers Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Awesome. Awesome. Let's just check the footnotes out here. Um, Look upon you with favor. That's what it means by lift up your... When it says the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, it means to look upon you with favor. you imagine the Father in heaven looking upon you with favor? And the footnote on verse 27, where it says, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel, says, uh, so they shall invoke my name on the children of Israel. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, guys, since we're on this, we're going to end with this. And I'm going to pray this over you guys. Don't forget tomorrow evening, Lord willing, same time, same place, 7 p.m. Eastern. For those of you in different parts of the world, that's 7 p.m. Eastern, which is UTC minus 5. UTC minus 5. Okay. And we will continue the book of Numbers, which is an awesome, awesome book, as you can see. Awesome book. The Word of God that is forever settled in heaven. Amen. You guys are awesome, like I always say. And it's true. You guys are awesome. You guys are world changers. You guys can change the world. Don't think any less of yourself. You guys can do it. You guys can do it. Take the word of God. Be be bold. Be strong. For the Lord, your God, is with you. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for your questions and your comments. You guys are awesome. I appreciate every one of you. I appreciate your time and your fellowship. You guys are awesome. Amen. So we'll end with this. As always, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Amen. See you tomorrow night.